Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you like weird and strange history as much as I do, then I have the podcast for you. I'm Jason Horton, host of Strange Year. Each episode, I break down the strange history and cultural happenings during that year, like 1977, the Wow Signal, 1963, Three Tramps Theory, 1844, the Millerite Movement, 1997, the Phoenix Lights, 1896, the Shortest War, 2004, Benjamin Kyle, 1518, the Dancing Plague, 1985, the Move Bombing, 1972, Remote Viewing. So to get your weekly weird history fix, pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to strange year wherever you listen to podcasts the story you are about to hear may contain detailed descriptions of intense violence it will certainly be worse than fiction Hello, my name is Les, and this is the Worse Than Fiction podcast. Thank you for joining me as we take a look at a true tale of unimaginable horror. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about a very unusual kind of serial killer. First, though, I'm going to play a promo for another true crime podcast called True Crime from A to Z, a Canadian duo that focuses on cases from the Great White North that you may have never heard of. Hi, this is Sydney. And I'm Shakira. We are True Crime from A to Z. Where we tell you the true stories of crimes about the Great White North. Our show focuses on the crime but pays respect to the victims and their families. We're so excited to bring our passion project to life and hope you will join us to bring light to these cases. This is True Crime from A to Z. Go and check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, back to today's serial killer. The overwhelming majority of such murderers are males, but this one is female. And that isn't the only thing that sets her apart. 
she isn't a Bell Gunness or Vicky Jackson kind of serial killer, and not even an Eileen Warnos type. When it comes to female serial killers, most of them fall under the Poisoner, or Angel of Death category. The Poisoner generally slips a toxin into the food or drinks of their unsuspecting victim, while the Angel of Death does almost the same thing, only in a medical setting, usually administering a drug overdose to the victim, and in other cases, suffocating their helpless prey. They prefer to kill silently and without a struggle, but today's subject preferred suffocation. A very hands-on, personal, and physical way to murder a person. It can take upwards of 10 minutes of depriving someone of breath to kill them. Is it as brutal as stabbing or beating someone to death, though? During the research and writing of this case, I asked my wife, if she were to be murdered, would she rather be stabbed, beaten, suffocated, or poisoned? Which of those options would be the worst way to go? Her answer, to my surprise, was poisoning. We would all like to think that being suffocated is painless, much like going to sleep. In truth, though, we really don't know, since being suffocated to death is extremely final, and those who've experienced it can't relay that feeling. I thought about it for a minute after she answered. I thought about how I would prefer suffocation. You would pass out within a couple of minutes and simply not wake up. Her reasoning was that if you were to be poisoned, you may not even know someone is trying to kill you, but if you're being physically suffocated, you are 100% aware that someone wants you to die. Adrenaline kicks in, and you try to get away, to get another soothing gasp of air, but you can't. You may be trembling, with a million thoughts running through your head. Your heart begins to race. You just need to inhale one more cool lung full of air, but you can't. It's a scary thought, and I think I agree with her reasoning. Now, I classified today's subject as a serial killer, and she definitely is. But what sets her apart from others isn't the method of murder. It's her victim type. She didn't kill terminally ill patients or numerous husbands. So without further ado, let's get into the topic of today's story. I hope you... Enjoy, if that's the right word for it. November 1958. Juanita and Albino Lumbrera were expecting a baby. Juanita was 19 at the time, and Albino 25. They were eager to start a family, and so they did. On the 21st, Juanita gives birth to a small, cute baby girl in Friona, Texas. They named her Diana, and she was to be the firstborn of seven children that they would eventually have over the years that followed. It was said that Diana was favored among the brood, and as she aged, they trusted her to look over her young siblings. Those siblings would later say that she was bossy, and ruled over them harshly. 
Diana was bigger than most of her peers growing up and was known to bully the other girls who were smaller than her. She had a short fuse and initiated conflict among classmates, even being known to grab nearby objects to use as weapons in some instances. She would make smart-ass remarks to teachers in school and outright refuse to participate in class or do the work that was assigned. Apparently, though she earned the right to repeat grades, teachers would give a passing grade for no other reason than to get rid of her and pass her on to the next teacher. In 1971, at just 13 years old, Diana would pretend to have a serious illness and drop out of school. She complained of chronic fatigue and general discomfort around the clock. She would faint and talk about chest pains and dizziness. How strange. Her parents would eventually take her to the hospital for an examination, but they were unable to determine the cause of her symptoms. The medical staff were perplexed and so transferred her to another hospital nearby that had better equipment for further testing. Still, no rational cause could be found for the symptoms she was complaining about, and doctors came to the consensus that she was probably faking it for sympathy. Her parents simply went along, and Diana never returned to school, instead running the streets and staying out late. Just a short time later, She came home with a young man and told her parents she was leaving with him. She got married to Rodolfo Carrillo at age 14, and the couple relocated to Bovina, Texas. Two years later, Rodolfo ended the marriage. Diana was said to have been flirtatious with other men, and for obvious reasons, Rodolfo didn't trust her to be faithful. I wouldn't have either in that situation. She was considered to be an attractive young woman, and as such, would have likely had men hitting on her often. Diana loved the attention, and often played along, even leaving home at times to return hours later without explaining where she had been or what she was doing. Rodolfo didn't like the fact that he was doing his part as provider, but Diana did whatever she wanted. Soon after, Diana met a young man named Lionel Garza, and the two would eventually get married. Lionel would later tell investigators that Diana was aggressive and had a short fuse. If she didn't get what she wanted, she would often fly off the handle, even threatening him with a knife on one occasion, and on another, she apparently tried to run him over with a car. He described her as a good actress who would lie and manipulate to get what she wanted from people. What she wanted, in most cases, was money and sympathy. The following year, at just 16 years old, Diana would give birth to the first of the six children she would eventually have. Diana and Lionel named the baby girl Melissa Lumbrera. They were living in Friona, Texas at the time. Lionel and others in Diana's life said that she was a good and loving mother. After the birth of Melissa, Diana's aggressive behavior escalated, according to Lionel, but he simply tolerated it, and a year and a half after Melissa's birth came their second child, Joanna. 
on the morning of November 30th, Lionel went to check on his daughters before going to work. Joanna was awake and appeared happy and normal. He played with her for a few moments, then left. Thirty minutes later, Diana would show up at the Palmer County Community Hospital, carrying the lifeless body of three-month-old Joanna. She was declared dead upon arrival, and examiners determined the cause to be asphyxia due to aspiration of stomach contents. She suffocated on her own vomit, or at least that's what they wrote in the records. Diana told the physicians that Joanna had been convulsing prior to going unconscious. The truth, however, is very likely a different story. Her skin was bluish, indicating that she had been starved of oxygen, and a small amount of blood had run from a nostril. Trace amounts of vomit was found in her mouth, which the attending physician attributed to the cause of death. No autopsy was performed, since Joanna's death wasn't considered to be suspicious. I don't know about you, but if this were my child, I would demand an autopsy be performed. But of course, Diana knew the exact cause of death. No autopsy was necessary, and she would be better off without one. Just a few months later, Diana and Lionel were married. He never suspected that his young bride could ever be responsible for the death of Joanna and neither did the medical staff that pronounced her dead. Lionel believed it was simply the work of God that she was chosen to go to heaven at that time. Where would she be today had this never happened to her? It was reported that Diana was hysterical as the casket that held her baby was lowered into the ground. Unfortunately, this won't be the only time we hear of her distress and how she fainted at the sight. In the days and weeks that followed Joanna's death, Lionel said that Diana had went shopping often to cheer herself up. As you know, that's what people normally do after they lose a child, right? Two weeks after their marriage, Lionel, Diana, and two-year-old Melissa went to a drive-in restaurant to get something to eat. While he was at the window talking with the cashier, he heard Diana scream. He ran to the car and found Diana holding Melissa, who had turned pale blue. Diana said that she was having a seizure, then stopped breathing. Lionel raced them to the hospital, and doctors were able to revive Melissa. They held her overnight for observation and further testing. What caused the episode was unable to be determined, but they had no suspicions of anything unnatural, so they released her. She was okay. For the time being, at least. Nearly a year to the day after the death of Joanna, Diana gave birth to Luis Garza, the third child and first boy to come from her and Lionel's relationship. At just two and a half months old, Diana would carry his limp body into the Palmer County Community Hospital. The medical team were able to revive him, and he was admitted for observation and testing. Lionel stayed by Luis and Diana's side for three days in the hospital, and on the third day, with everything appearing to be okay, Lionel returned to work.
an hour after his shift was over, he received a phone call from Diana. There was something wrong with Luis, and she said that she was afraid he was going to die. The hospital was a couple hours drive, so Lionel raced to get there and arrived at around 7 p.m. that evening. Luis had died before Lionel could make it. An autopsy was performed, but the cause of the infant's death was unable to be determined by examiners. One source I read stated that it was suspected to be SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, a phenomenon that isn't yet fully understood where a healthy baby dies suddenly without an obvious cause. There are many theories as to why this happens, but no one really knows. One detail that is noteworthy, though, is that babies that suffer a SIDS death don't turn blue. Luis did. Investigators would later come to learn that on the second day of Luis's hospital stay, nurses received an alert from a heart rate monitor that was attached to him. His heart rate was increasing rapidly, and a nurse raced into the room to find Diana leaning over the crib. She quickly retreated as the nurse entered, and the baby began crying. His heart rate returned to normal, but there was a small amount of blood that had trickled from one of his nostrils. Why did the nurse not make a report of this? Diana could have been stopped right then and there, but for whatever reason, still, no one considered any of these incidents to be suspicious. I can't wrap my head around it. Just a couple of months later, Lionel and Diana separated. For a while at least. Eight months after the death of Luis, on October 2nd, 1978, Diana would show up at a neighbor's house, carrying the limp, cyanotic body of another of her children. This time, it would be three-year-old Melissa. She told the neighbor that she couldn't drive her car because the brakes were bad, so they went to the home of the neighbor's mother, who lived a short distance away, got in her car, and sped to the hospital. Upon arrival, Diana bursts through the doors holding Melissa and screamed for help. Attempts at reviving the young girl were unsuccessful. She had died well before she was brought in. The neighbor and her mother, who had taken them to the hospital, reported seeing Melissa playing in the yard the day before and that she was healthy and active. In the span of just three years, Diana had lost just as many children to mysterious circumstances. And I know you can't see my air quotes, but trust me, I'm using them. This time, doctors were suspicious, and an autopsy would be performed, since they couldn't find any reasonable cause of death. The only thing the examiner would find of note would be small amounts of vomit in her mouth and throat. He listed her official cause of death as asphyxia due to aspiration of stomach contents. No further investigation was necessary. Shortly after the death of Melissa, Diana came to Lionel asking for help 
and reluctantly he let her move back in with him. November 29, 1979, Diana gave birth to her third daughter, Melinda Ann Garza. Her behavior was even worse this time around. She was violently aggressive and would go out with her friends and not return until the next day. I, for one, would not tolerate my significant other doing that. The behavior continued to escalate, and one day during an argument, she told Lionel that Melinda wasn't his, so he packed his stuff and left. I think he was staying only for Melinda's sake. I'm glad he got out. No one deserves to be abused, cheated on, and used for money. In 1980, Lionel filed for divorce. Diana had went to a cousin, Ben Aylman, requesting to stay with his family for a while and that she would help out around the house and babysit his compensation. It would be a fateful decision for the Aylman family. In October of that year, Ben had been at work while his wife was sick in bed. Diana was caring for the kids, which included six-week-old Erica Aylman. Ben came home while on break to check on the kids and everything was okay, so he returned to work. He worked close enough to their home that he was able to see Diana get into his car, then drive away. On his lunch break, he again returned home to find his wife and cousin David waiting for him. They told him that something was wrong and that they needed to go to the hospital. They had received a phone call from Diana informing them that Erica had died. She said that during the drive, Erica had screamed sharply, then stopped breathing. She raced to West Palm's medical hospital while trying to perform whatever form of CPR she could while simultaneously driving. But shortly after arriving, she was pronounced dead. Ben recalls that the baby was just fine when he was home for his 10 o'clock break and that he had played with her for a few minutes before returning to work. How could a healthy baby with no health issues simply die all of a sudden. Ben was relentless in asking that an autopsy be performed, but the results were inconclusive. Less than two weeks later, Diana and her daughter Melissa moved out of the ailment home. By this time, three of Diana's children had mysteriously died, and now Erica, still practically a newborn, while in Diana's care. Shortly thereafter, Diana and Melinda went to live with Diana's mother. It was in 1982 that the divorce of Lionel and Diana Lumbrera would be finalized, and in February of that year, an ambulance was summoned to Diana's home. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
She told paramedics that she had discovered Melinda unconscious and bleeding from the nose. They rushed her to the emergency room and were able to revive her, but weren't able to determine exactly what happened. Medical records revealed that Diana already had four children that died, so doctors decided to check Melinda for signs of abuse or other trauma. They found no obvious evidence, but admitted her anyway, and she would spend two days being monitored before they would release her. August 17th of that year, Melinda Lumbrera, a spunky three-year-old at the time, died suddenly. The medical team could find no reason for the child to have stopped breathing, and finally, suspicions arose. One of the doctors contacted the sheriff's office, requesting an investigation into the death of Melinda. Forensic pathologist Ralph Erdman examined Melinda and came to the conclusion that she had died as a result of acute heart failure, and no other investigation was conducted. Diana had purchased a $2,500 life insurance policy on Melinda just the day before she died. Just a few days after her death, Diana started dressing up and going out often. She didn't seem sad that she had just lost her fourth child. I don't know about you, but I just couldn't picture myself doing that. More likely than not, I'd be at home with a bottle in my hand and tears running down my face. I can't even imagine losing just one of my children, much less three or four. But I'm not a murderer, but Diana is. So her brain works very differently than mine. Her party lifestyle continued, and she found it quite easy to manipulate men into parting ways with their money. October 10th, 1983. Diana gave birth to Christopher Daniel Marcos while living in Clovis, New Mexico. The father was listed as John Marcos, a man who she had helped bring to the U.S. from Mexico. She informed him that he was a father, and without question, he added Diana and Christopher to his life insurance policies and gave her money as she requested. The doctor who delivered Christopher was aware of the death of her previous four children and sent a request to Child Protective Services that they keep a watchful eye on the boy. Diana never kept any scheduled appointments with social services, and though they tried, they were unable to locate Diana and Christopher. Three months later, on March 28, 1984, Diana carried, yet again, another lifeless child into a hospital. Christopher Marcos this time, it was the Plains Memorial Hospital in Dimmit, Texas. Cause of death was determined to be septicemia, which is defined as a poisoning of the blood, often caused by bacterial infection. Medical staff determined that by the time he was brought in, he had already been dead for some time. There was no hope in bringing him back. She began her infamous, hysterical, tearless crying and fainting antics, and the doctor who had pronounced him dead was the same one who had seen him the week before. In an almost mirror image of the events leading up to each child's death, 
She had taken Christopher to a clinic just a month prior to his death. He was blue and he was barely breathing. He was revived and except for a cold, he was otherwise healthy. The doctor prescribed antibiotics and released him back to Diana. Eight days before his death, he was taken to the hospital. She told the nurse that he had been convulsing and again he was blue and barely clinging to life. The medical team was able to stabilize him and he was admitted for observation and testing. After two days, it was determined that other than an ear infection, he was fine. March 28th would be his final hospital visit. I realize that this story has become very predictable, but bear with me. I believe that the tale of each child deserves to be told, even if there isn't enough information about their lives to share more positive times. Everyone thought of Diana as a loving mother, and her kids seemed to be happy, growing well and normal. I wish that they had lived long enough for me to paint a picture of the kind of people they were but it just didn't happen. I hadn't heard of this case until just a few days before I decided to cover it, so I wasn't prepared for the heartbreaking research and reading that I was getting into. I was browsing Murderpedia looking for a female serial killer that could be interesting to detail, and came across Diana Lumbrera, had a basic look at the info and went headfirst into it. This case hits hard. I have three kids of my own, and just can't fathom how someone could become a serial killer and choose her own flesh and blood as her victims. I don't know what to say. I'm dumbfounded. Back to the story. We're almost there. May 1st, 1990. St. Catherine's Hospital in Garden City, Kansas receives a phone call from a woman who says that her son isn't breathing and that his lips had turned blue. It was Diana. The nurse attending the phone had tried to get her to give the address so she could send help, but all she heard was the phone drop to the ground, then silence. The nurse then got a dispatcher to try and trace the call, but the attempt was unsuccessful. Eight minutes later, Diana walked through the doors of the hospital, carrying the limp body of Jose Antonio Lumbrera, screaming, quote, My baby's dying. The staff sprung into action immediately and rushed the child into a room and began CPR. Diana stated that she had found the child lifeless in his bed minutes earlier. The team working on the young boy made note of cyanosis which is when the skin of a person turns blue, usually caused by oxygen deprivation, a condition seen in drownings and suffocation. Also present is what is known as petechiae, which are reddish spots found all over the face. These are hemorrhages that occur when blood pressure builds up due to strain from severe vomiting, or in rare cases caused by infections. The doctor who was working on Jose inserted a tube into his stomach and found that it was full of undigested food. Jose had not been vomiting, 
so the only reasonable explanation would have been a severe infection that had infiltrated his vascular system, causing the micro-hemorrhaging on his face. While the team was working, a nurse had went to the records department and pulled Jose's hospital files. She brought them into the emergency room and gave them to Dr. Scholl, who noted that the boy had been treated the previous night and given a prescription for antibiotics. The diagnosis was a minor respiratory infection, certainly not considered to be life-threatening. A grim thought enters Dr. Scholl's mind. There was nothing obstructing Jose's breathing, and the infection wasn't serious enough to cause hemorrhaging so the only thing left would almost certainly be intentional smothering. During asphyxiation, the heart will gradually begin to beat harder, the body's natural attempt at delivering oxygen to the brain. Blood pressure builds to the point of rupturing capillaries in the neck and head, leaving visible petechiae on the delicate tissues of the face and neck. The team tried for 37 minutes to revive the young boy but unfortunately were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead at 10.25 p.m. Jose was four years old, the longest lived of all of Diana's children. When informed of her son's death, Diana sobbed hysterically, and apparently fainted and began shaking. Dr. Scholl, who had not only had the job of pronouncing the boy dead, but also the task of relaying the news to Diana, believed this to be a strange reaction and ordered a nurse to look up Diana's medical records. As the nurse hurried to do as instructed, Dr. Scholl allowed Diana to see her son one last time before he was taken to the morgue. Diana again sobbed and fainted at seeing her son's dead body, but there was something strange that Dr. Scholl noticed. Through all of the moaning and wailing, she never shed a single tear. Eventually, the nurse would bring Diana's records to Dr. Shull, and as he looked over them, he couldn't believe what he was reading. All five of the children she had before Jose had died, some under similar mysterious circumstances. How is it possible that all of these kids would die with no known health problems. Shortly afterward, Diana was sent home by staff, and five hours after the boy's death, Dr. Scholl called the police department and requested to speak with a detective. An autopsy would be performed in just a few hours, and he wanted law enforcement to attend. The medical examiner worked very carefully to determine the cause of death. All of his organs were normal, and there were no signs of a genetic disorder. It was determined that the child had been smothered to death. Two days later, detectives showed up at Diana's house to ask her some questions. One thing that she said raised a major red flag in the detectives' minds. When asked what time she discovered Jose not breathing, she said around 9 p.m. She didn't get him to the hospital until 9.48 p.m. What parent in their right mind would wait so long? 
They knew something was terribly wrong with this situation and sought a search warrant as soon as possible. Before that, though, detectives had asked her if they could take Jose's bedding for forensic testing, which she agreed to. On the day of Jose's funeral and burial, detectives Ken Elliott and James Hawkins of the Garden City PD presented their evidence and theories and obtained a warrant to search Diana's home. They decided to wait until the following day to execute the search. It was May 5th when Detective Elliot knocked on Diana's door and asked her to go to the station to answer some more questions. She was grilled for over three hours, giving contradictory statements, and when she was read her Miranda rights, she became angry, requested a lawyer, then stormed out of the interrogation room. She was not under arrest at that point and was free to leave. Immediately after, Detective Elliot assembled a search team and went to Diana's house to execute the warrant. During the search, Detective Hawkins obtained an arrest warrant and notified Elliot via radio. She was immediately cuffed and taken to police HQ while the search team continued scouring her home for any evidence they might be able to collect. They confiscated any paperwork related to finances and any other betting they thought appropriate. If Jose had been vomiting throughout the day of his death, surely there would be some evidence, right? The sheets and pillowcases they had collected a few days prior ended up showing no evidence that Jose had vomited, at least not on the bed. As they collected evidence, Diana's younger sister, Estella, showed up at the apartment and became angry with the detectives when they informed her that Diana was arrested for murdering Jose. Estella told the detectives that a curse had been placed on Diana's family long ago, and that was why all six of her children had died. The detectives headed back to interview Diana once again, after the search was completed to satisfaction. During the interview, she was defensive, and was described by the detectives as fearful. After pressuring her for a while, Detective Utz, who had joined the investigation earlier, said, quote, I want to believe that it was an accident or that you just didn't know what you were doing when you suffocated Jose with the pillow. Diana replied with, quote, It wasn't a pillow. The detectives then concocted a story which saw Diana as being in a blackout state when she killed Jose and simply didn't remember it. Diana said, quote, Yeah, that's probably what happened. It was far from a direct confession, but it was something at least, and shortly afterwards, they would wrap up the interview and send Diana back to her cell. In all of the interviews that followed, Diana wove stories of curses and black magic that she believed was the cause of all six of her children and her cousin Erica's deaths. Seven children, under her supervision, died due to supernatural forces, according to her. I don't think that kind of thing would stand in court. I'm glad to tell you, it didn't. One thing was known. 
precluding the death of almost all seven of the children that had died while Diana was supervising them. She had taken some of them to the hospital for whatever reason in the days before their deaths. Perhaps this was to lay a groundwork of caring and to give her some sort of credit as being a concerned parent. After all, she did seek medical attention for the kids before they died, so obviously she had their well-being in mind, right? Detectives set about interviewing doctors and finding records related to the deaths of all of the children who had not survived their experience under Diana's watchful eye. Most of the doctors interviewed stated they had never expected foul play or didn't want to believe that a mother could be the cause of her child's death, especially when there was no obvious evidence of foul play, but investigators weren't buying it. There was no way in their minds that seven children in her care could simply die for no explainable reason. Charges were filed for murder in the case of Jose Lumbrera. I'm not going to get too deep into the circus that followed. The trial was eventful, to say the least, but if you're interested, you can find more information in court documents, archived newspaper articles, and Mommy's Little Angels by Mary Lou Cavanaugh. Diana had various outstanding loans and had cashed in on insurance policies for each of her children. The prosecutor used this fact as the main motive for killing her children. It was quick cash for Diana. In part of the opening statement at trial, the prosecutor also laid out, quote, The second motive that the state's going to show is a different type of motive. A motive that people are not necessarily accustomed to hearing about. Diana Lumbrera had a need to obtain sympathy a need to obtain people feeling sorry for her and her problems that she had. I believe that that syndrome is called Munchausen syndrome and will have evidence to that effect and it's specifically called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And the way she could get sympathy, the evidence is going to show, is by showing that her child had terrible sickness, terrible illness, life-threatening and debilitating problems that occurred all the time and she was just a person who had to carry this cross. She had a cross to bear, and that people would feel sorry for her. Ultimately, Diana Lumbrera was convicted of the death of Jose in Kansas, and was handed a life sentence with 15 years to be served minimum. Shortly thereafter, the investigation and trial into her children's deaths in Texas began. Instead of going for charges on all of her kids' murders, Prosecutor Johnny Atkinson decided to offer a plea deal to Diana, which she accepted to avoid a possible death sentence. She pled no contest for the murder of Melinda Garza and was sentenced to life with parole eligibility after seven years. She then went on trial in Lubbock for the murder of Luis and she also pled no contest in that case and was sentenced to life, which would run concurrently with her other sentence. Basically, in total, she was given a 22-year sentence altogether. Angering, isn't it? Seven children died at her hand, and she was sentenced, in essence, to three years for each life she removed from Earth. I'm glad to tell you, though, that... Diana has not been paroled from prison as of this recording and is locked away in Texas, 
unable to harm any more children. That's going to do it for Episode 5 of Worse Than Fiction. Thank you again for joining me, and uh, I ask that you go like the Facebook page. Leave a review, tell a friend. Those are the best ways to support a podcast without spending a dime. If you'd like to offer a bit of financial support and are able to do so, I did put a donate button up on the website, so you can just go to worsethanfictionpodcast.com and it's right there on the home page. Also, be sure to give Worse Than Fiction a like and a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on both of those, even though you may not know it. Until you hear from me again, goodbye.